We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm depressed. I'm Ben. Hi, Ben. I'm so sorry you're depressed, but... Oh, God, because we have to have to keep talking about this show. <laughs> and we're talking about Space 1999, and, and you know... It's the, the gift that keeps on, keeps on giving. giving. When we did our last one on the Dorcons, normally with a lot of our shows, we ended up, we talk about the last episode, and then we just kind of roll up the series in the, in the final episode. And we didn't do that last time, because Space 1999 is one of those thankfully rare shows but not unheard of shows that went through such a radical restructuring between seasons that you could be forgiven for seeing it as two shows entirely. And I'm thinking about, you know, this, Buck Rogers, uh, War of the Worlds. Um, and so I thought, you know, we could, we could have a little bit of a conversation about why the heck they did it and what they did and and was it successful and uh, you know all that stuff as as we say farewell to not only space 1999 but we're also saying farewell to jerry anderson for well probably the foreseeable future have anything in the pipeline that came from him that we have uh, even on our long list so this mm-hmm. is this is this is the end of jerry Anderson. what that one-off special thing. Hail yeah, which we have. Something. It's, it's future yeah. tomorrow, day after yesterday, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something that, like that. But apart from that, we're we're Jerry Anderson down. So, so I I wanted to ask. Um, I'm going to start. You know, with just a few prepared questions. Uh, to be fair to our listeners, uh, Ben has seen the questions, so I'm not springing them on him. Um, they're really just topics for discussion. Um, and and. I don't want to presuppose anything, so I'm going to start with a question, but between Series 1, Series 2 of Space 99, was one of them better than the other? On average, yes. Which one was that? First one. The first season. And yeah. and so, why? I mean, what, what, what were the strengths of Season 1 over Season 2? And I agree with you. I think Season 1 had its flaws, but it... It did. It was interesting. Uh, it tried to be something entirely different, which, uh, and, and that's that's one of the trademarks that Jerry has always had. You know, when we just talked when we talked about UFO, um, here he was. He he was trying to create a series that was not about the alien invasion. He was trying to create a series about the people that were dealing with the alien invasion mm-hmm. and and their lives. Here we've got now we have space nineteen ninety nine and. You know, for anybody who takes a look at the series, you know, cold and without any ideas to what this is all about, they're gonna, you know, especially when they, you know, first quarter, maybe first half of the of the series, they're gonna be, you know, they're gonna be kind of, you know, uttering, you know, WTF, not knowing what the heck is going on. But it it, it isn't until, you know, at least for me, when I learned that this was a Jerry was trying to create a series that was all about the mysteries of space. I mean, it because. Again, this takes place in 1999. Man has barely left, mankind has barely left the cradle of Earth. 
and is just now really beginning to explore space. You know, forget that the moon is now out there. Uh, and now you have these unintended um, travelers. I mean, they, they, it wasn't in their, in, in, in their little calendar that they were going to be flying off into space. Nonetheless, here they are. And especially for the moon-based alpha people, because they are the least equipped to handle a, you know, a mission, shall we say, of this scale, of this type. And now they're having to deal with how bizarre space really is. And if you just keep that in your head, that space is just filled with like the wildest mysteries. And it's like, oh, my God, I had no idea space had this kind of thing or that physics operated in this kind of way or that there were, you know, that, that any of this was out there. Then you, t- then you can look at the first uh, first season and, and I would say the first half of the, of, of, uh, the first season and think, Okay, this is really cool what Jerry was trying to do here. I mean, this this is something that is entirely different. It's at times extremely intellectual. It is at times extremely baffling. Uh, at times it is so abstract in its attempt to be abstract that it forgets to be abstract. <clears throat> but it's it's still trying to do something different as opposed to what season two was. And that is just your alien evasion of the week. Yeah, the the series two definitely was not going for anything. <clears throat> it was a shoot 'em up series. Yeah, well, yeah, it was definitely an action adventure series. Uh, I read an article once, and I uh, didn't catch its exact provenance, but uh, I'm going to quote something from it that it said that was that the premise of the series one is such in which all of space was an unsolvable mystery that the mm. Alphans were psychologically unprepared to contend with. Mm-hmm. I mean, they in a nutshell. They, they put it down on that. And I in that context, I, I really appreciate what they were trying to do there. I, I agree completely. In that context, that's exactly right. And I, and I like that. I wish that had been kind of maybe delivered a little bit, you know, that, that idea um, had been uh, more easily delivered to viewers uh, and possibly even, the, you know, whoever was in charge of uh, the studio— because as with UFO, you know, somebody kind of said, okay, Jerry, this is all nice and good, but we're really tired of tea in the Midlands, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're really tired of um, endless talking on the moon, you know, with lots of head scratching. We want action. We want adventure. We want aliens. I, I think that they... <sighs> wow. Talk about losing a thought in the middle of... Oh, okay. I think that one of the areas where they failed in season one uh, you know, we've got this premise of the, the great mystery of space, and we've got a group of scientists, because that's basically what everyone on Alpha is. They're scientists. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And too often, they walk away with the sort of, oh, that was very mystical at the end of it. And I, and I don't expect them to solve the mysteries, because the premise here is that it is an unsolvable mystery. But the attitude that they adopt towards it is remarkably unscientific that is true as they go through and victor bergman in particular i love victor bergman but they wanted to make him into a bit of a mystic wizard kind of guy he sees beyond science he's he's such a great scientist he has an imagination that uh, he oh no it, it it went further than that maybe that was the original intent but he it got to the point where he became such the philosophical sage that at times it almost felt like he was anti-science yes it did. And I think that's that was a flaw. And I think that's the flaw of non-science writers 
that you you arrogant scientists you think you know it all there's a lot more in this universe than you understand scientists understand that there's more in this universe than they understand but what they also know is that a solid methodological process will lead to understanding mm -hmm. that that you can't just go gosh there's a gap we don't understand space god did it like yeah and and I think that's a that's that fundamental misunderstanding or contempt that a lot of people have towards scientists or science in shows. It's too cold. It's too clinical. It doesn't take into account the human heart or the soul or the or or ghosts or mysticism or whatever you want to put in it. And you know uh, that's all fine and dandy if you want to write fairy tales, but not when you're writing science fiction. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, I mean, there are one or two stories where circumstances, because, you know, the moon is traveling, mm -hmm. so they only have access to this planet or this phenomenon for a limited amount of time. So I can say there are one, there, there are a few, not many, but there are just a few episodes, <clears throat> excuse me, where... I'm okay with them going away saying, we don't know what the heck that was. That's fine. It, it, saying, I, I, like I said, I absolutely agree that they only have you have three days to look at a planet or look at a phenomena and then off you go. Mm -hmm. But it was that particularly in Bergman's case. Oh, yeah. That he would just sort of adopt this sort of like, well, you know, these things are unknowable. It's not, no, it's not unknowable. It's just that you, you just don't collect know enough data. Time. Right. And... I feel you'd have a different attitude walking away from it. I mean, you'd be upset that you couldn't solve the mystery. You'd get as much data as you could. You might postulate a few ideas, but they would be scientific ideas as to what it might have been. And that's the that was that's where I'm talking about the failure. Absolutely, absolutely, they're not supposed to figure it out. They they're just supposed to get clues and pieces. And oh, what a better show this would have been if. They'd mm -hmm. use modern storytelling techniques and they'd actually have, this would be a show where you could get an arc. Pieces oh, of yeah. a scientific puzzle put together six, 10, 12 episodes apart where you'd get a little bit more piece of a, of a phenomena because, you know, space is also, depending on what type of phenomena you're talking about, isn't going to be just localized to one planet. Right? These patterns are oh, going yeah. to repeat. Physics repeats. The 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 order, the, the way things form repeat. Now, maybe on an individual planet, you would never get the same pattern of life. In fact, you'd never get uh, anthropomorphic beings, um, statistically speaking. But, you know, the, there would be space phenomena and, and, you know, like space eggs that they encountered or space life forms. These sorts of things. We might we might see patterns and they might start right. together I mean, and that would exactly. be amazing. You, you start cataloging everything that you're coming across. Yes, at first, everything's going to seem completely disjointed. But eventually, you know, like I said, if they had gone for some kind of, you know, connected storytelling, you know, but again, that was unheard of. Mm -hmm. At that time, story arcs, you know, we were you know, 15, 20 years away from finally, if not longer, uh, from seeing story arcs finally being done. Uh but still, if they had taken that approach, if Jerry had the vision to take that kind of approach uh, with that kind of storytelling, then you would have episodes where, you know, eventually you do collect enough data and then you th and then finally you get this one little missing piece, you know, and then and then you can have that big eureka moment. And, you know, and sometimes there's something very rewarding about seeing 
that scientific breakthrough. I mean, I, I've seen science fiction movies where you do see, uh, and, and I'm talking hard sci-fi, you know, not, not fantastical, but just some really good hard sci-fi where you see the scientists make that breakthrough. They have that aha moment. And there's something that's in, you know, eminently rewarding about that. And I feel like we were completely robbed of that. And by not doing that, you're also shortchanging your characters by turning them into, you know, one episode reboot buffoons. Yeah. Yep. And and we did see that in this show. A lot. We Quite. saw that. Unfortunately, we saw that a lot. Um, and and I agree with you. I, I think the, the the one that was the most disappointing is um, Victor. Yeah. And and he was probably my favorite character in the first year. Well, I, it, yeah. He wasn't my favorite character in the second year, but he was definitely my first. He, I wonder why. <laughs> I, I remember uh, I remember seeing, um, gosh, uh, Bill Plate, the bad astronomer. Saw him at a convention, um, the Bad Astronomy blog, and a science writer, and he was talking about uh, how Victor Bergman was when he was a kid was like the character that he really, really uh, looked up to and emphasized with. And got a chance to meet him at a convention. He said the guy was just an amazing guy. Had a chat with him and talked about what he was trying to do and how important science was. So it, it sounds like sounds like the actor was bought into the notion of. Bergman being, you know, the uber scientist, I think it's just probably in the writing that that it... But, you know, it's nice to know here's a character that can inspire someone to go mm-hmm. on. I mean, we, we talk about how Star Trek inspired us, and right. and to a lesser degree, Space 1999 inspired me as a kid, but um, it never... I, until we watched this show episode by episode, I don't think I ever understood why it didn't inspire me like Captain Kirk inspired me. Hmm. <laughs> do you now? I do now because John Koenig is the worst commander in the history of commanders. He's terrible. Well, uh, he is pretty bad, but considering the circumstances, I mean, there is a bit of a backstory. Um, he's up there to replace somebody. And what what, what was Moonbase Alpha really doing? Um, it was a repository. You know, the moon was a repository for nuclear uh, waste. Waste, right. <laughs> And it was also supposed to serve, uh, they were preparing it as a launching point for a space mission. They used it that for a space Koenig, yep. That Koenig was not to be a part of. He was just there to serve as administrator. Even though we do see in a later episode that he and Bergman do have space exploration experience. Oh, absolutely. I think I think Koenig's was put in charge. Well, they say it. His job, it's not just administrator. His job is to get that thing off the ground, right? He's he's supposed to be, you know, focused on that one particular but I think the, the moon base also had other scientific purposes. I mean, they wouldn't need uh, the botany labs or or things like that. I think it's a I think it's a, a actually a interesting idea that's never explicitly explicitly mentioned. But how do we afford to get a moon base? I mean, considering where our NASA budget is now and where we are in progress to technology in 1999. Even back in the 1970s, they tied the two together. We have something we'd like to do that's purely scientific and altruistic, and that doesn't pay the bills, and we have all this nuclear waste, mm-hmm. right? I think it was probably meant to imply that you know the, the moon base is funded because they can put the nuclear waste up there. And so the other functions are, in a way, kind of superfluous. Uh, They're secondary, Secondary I guess. To, to handling the nuclear waste. And um, it doesn't mean that stuff isn't getting done. It's just kind of a, sort of that, 
rather cynical view that Jerry Anderson's works have sometimes about about politics and true. So yeah, I, I yeah yeah I really and I do feel Space 1999 missed over and over again in the first season episodes that just either could have been great um, or or episodes that are just kind of mentally dysfunctional <laughs> but mm-hmm. always you know always kind of novel there there is no straightforward story there i don't think in, in the entire plot there's always some i don't want to call it a twist because it's not like an m night shamalama ding dong story but it's um askew let's put it that way from a standard type space drama which you know is okay. gone I- in season two right it, they're all by the numbers. Oh, it's very, very, yes. I was going to say very linear, but you're right. It is so paint by numbers. So, yeah. So did uh, did series two get anything? I mean, so what did, what, you know, from what we've read, from what you've read, from what we've heard, what we know from the zeitgeist over the years, what went wrong? What did they do in oh. series two? Oh, my God. Why did they do what they did in series two is more important question. Yeah, uh, I I think that's a really really great question. Um, I I, I kind of think um, well I, I don't know what the ratings were. Um, no no idea um, what the ratings were at the time when it when it aired. Um, obviously, I don't know what the rating system is over in um, in England. If you know where this series originated from, mm. and of course it was being syndicated over to here. <clears throat> But I, part of me kind of wonders if, okay, so Jerry was a bit of a visionary, although I think he lacked, sometimes he lacked really good focus, but he had some really, really great nebulous ideas and then he would farm these things out to other people and they would just have absolutely no idea how to execute them. Thus, you come up with things that studio heads take a look at and say, eh, that's not what we bought into. And I kind of think that's what was going on. Um... Again, like I said, it, you know, it, I think it's possible that maybe the series suffered from you know, that same kind of re, uh, redirection that UFO went through uh, when the studios exec, studio execs, bleh, studio execs there found those early episodes were like having tea in the Midlands. I think you know, just as UFO was retooled to have more action and space fights and whatever because executives felt that's what audiences responded to, I kind of have a feeling that's what Space 1999 also suffered from. Um, yeah, and maybe undoubtedly, you know, undoubtedly, you know, maybe that played a huge part in its dwindling popularity and subsequent cancellation. Because again, uh, and and I we've seen studios do this; they get involved and they shouldn't, mm. because they the studio heads are there to manage and you know. Much like Koenig was there to serve as the administrator for Moonbase Alpha, studio heads are not there to um, control the content, shall we say, on a creative level. They're there to administrate it and keep their fat fingers out of what the creators are trying to do. Mm. And I think they got involved and said, this is not what we wanted. Give us what we want. And it's like, okay, well, we'll give you what, it's not what we want to do, but we'll give you what you want. And they turn around, give them what they want, and next thing you know, you got crap. So I'm going to go out here on a limb and say that um, with regards to the, uh, I guess it's not exactly a studio in this case, but um, when they said, you know, too much tea in the Midlands, uh, and, and remember, there was a fire that delayed production of UFO between part one and part two of the series. And so they 
they went to a new studio and they had some cast changes and whatnot that were not intentional. Um, I, I kind of agree that, that they were a little too much. You know, there's a promise of a show called UFO that there is some UFO activity in it. And you got basically zero in some episodes of the show. And I think that I I didn't would not want them to have removed it because I think that was the one of the interesting aspects of the show, the 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 tea in the Midlands bit of it. But I think maybe, you know what, a retooling it from 8515 to maybe 6040, 6535, something like that, probably would have gone a long way towards addressing the problems without fundamentally changing the the nature of the show. Um, With regards to Space 1999, of course, there was the relatively uh, acrimonious breakup of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson Mm. uh, at that point, which is why Sylvia is no longer a producer on Part 2. When Space 1999 came out, it had, um, from television critics, it had reasonably good reviews. Uh, from, you know, Isaac Asimov, it had a, a bit of a hit piece on it because of the stupidity of the <clears throat> scientific premise of the moon being blasted out of Earth's orbit. Um, the ratings weren't terrible, but you got to remember, w- w- what do ratings mean in a syndicated program that's shown on a different day at a different time in every city in the United States? The ratings in Britain were irrelevant. They, they, the, show was, the show was predicated on American sales from day one. Okay, I, I didn't know about that. I mean, it, they they did that, but, you know, they, they had it in Britain as well. But it was, you know, big money America kind of uh, program with that in sight. And so it didn't do badly, right? That's, huh. This is the whole thing. It didn't. It wasn't doing terrible. It, it's never going to be a primetime show because it's not a prime. It was not a primetime show and it, it didn't garner that kind of i don't remember what i don't know what time it was on for when you were a kid i think it was on saturday around 5 p.m it was about uh yeah uh, between between five and six for for me where i lived in california yeah on saturdays i think it was saturdays it might have been sunday I, I'm, I won't swear. We to had, well, we had other, two but... showings. There, there were two different channels that showed it uh, when I was growing up. Um, one channel showed it a week, uh, showed the the episode a week later. So uh, I missed it. I missed the pilot, uh, br- um, Breakaway. Breakaway, and but I was able to get caught up by kind of doing overlap watching, shall we say? And I was able to get caught up, and I was able to watch the same episode with my friends as they were catching it on the Saturday night showing. Yeah. So I'm, you know, you, you're not going to get. You can only get local Nielsen's at a at a local level in certain cities, and it's just it, it was it was a different animal. They, their basis is on you know the local channels get their local ratings, and how does it fare against other shows in their in their market and in those time frames, and whether or not it's worth for them to buy it. So it was really about the stations who are willing to buy the package. Is the way they tell if it's successful in in that kind of syndication. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's 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 more about who's willing to put your money on the table. So and you know, one of the things that was a critique of the show was that in times some of the plots were impenetrable. Yeah. Um, or they were just too. I hate to use the word cerebral because that's that not was going to really, be the. That's not, not what it is. It's not cerebral. It's they're too uh, esoteric. Too esoteric. That's excellent word for it. Um, incomplete, uh, <laughs> like just, just not abstract, abstract, oh, even better to too abstract. And we saw that on 
you know, in going through it, knowing that it was saying there are times when you just like, what am yeah, I watching? What? <laughs> How well, did that happen? And that's for us who are, you know, a steeped in the show and steeped in science fiction and desperate, desperate science fiction nerds at that particular time in our lives, because we're not now, obviously. Oh, um, heavens no. Why would we do that? No, 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 no. And, but, you know, my dad, who liked science fiction, who enjoyed science fiction programs, had, you know, wasn't one of those parents who was like, oh, Battlestar Galactic is on? I'm leaving the room. Not not like that at all. He'd watch him. Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, Star Trek, it, you know, all those things. It just, he wasn't like, I will be in front of the sofa at that time. And mm-hmm. Space 1999, you know, got some of that, I got some of that feedback from him. It's like, I don't know what they're talking about there. They're just putting stuff on the screen. And so I can see how you might sit down and uh, take some of that feedback on board and say, can we tighten this up a little bit? Um, I think the problem is is that had we had the same production team mm. and maybe the same budget, because I think they cut the budget. Oh um, yeah, I yeah they cut it a lot. And had we had had those two things remained, and we said now let's let's tighten up that scripting a little bit and try to be a little smarter about this then that would be different than bringing in a whole nother producer with an American perspective and having him been told what you need is a little bit more action, a little less metaphysical. And he goes at it the Fred Freiberger way and Mm. says, all right, here's what we do. Um, We get rid of this Bergman guy. Can't stand him. Crazy old fart. Young people, young people, get me a pretty girl. Hey, Spock, I I need a girl Spock. No, we probably can't do pointy ears. Do eyebrows. Yeah, eyebrows. Yeah, that's it. I, you know, I I can just kind of picture this. It, it, it's that scene in uh, Monty Python where they're all sitting around the studio table and Graham Chapman's wearing, sitting at the head of the table and he's like spouting movie stuff and all the yes men are around the table. Splunge for me too, sir! <laughs> that's, that's when I picture the, the retooling meeting. Being like at Space 1999, mm. Series 2. So is anything good in Series 2? Is there any... Did, did they make any improvements from 1 to 2? You know, when I first watched the series, Season 2, one of the things that I liked is that it felt like it had more color. Mm-hmm. But in... And yes, there is more color. Black. But, well, yeah, a lot of, a lot of dark. But I what had also ended up happening is that it came at a cost... And part of that is just the quality of of the sets. I remember when we when we watched the watching Breakaway, and I remember thinking, "Dang, gum, those sets look just absolutely amazing." I mean, yes, everything is white, which was sort of like uh, you know maybe um, a leftover from um, the Douglas Trumbull look, look uh, you yeah. know, two thousand one kind of thing. You know, you know that white sterile kind of look, uh, which became you know practically synonymous with um, reasonably futuristic science fiction. <clears throat> Uh, and for a Space nineteen ninety, yeah, for a time, and Space nineteen ninety nine had a lot of that. Uh, and, and I remember as a kid thinking, "Oh God, that's boring. It's dull. It's just there's. I mean, there's no color." Um, you could tell I was gay, huh? Um, and then when season two came, it's like, "Oh, look, there's all this color." But I look at it now, and it's like, "Yeah, there's color, but it's crap." I mean, I, the the quality of like the sets and and even even the costumes don't look that great. 
I mean, it's like you can tell Sylvia did not have that kind of design function going on because, oh, my God, that is like a really weird sweat jacket that Koenig is wearing. Yeah. So, I mean, I I I don't put OK, I don't put the color problem down to the sets. I put the color problem down to cinematography, which went way down. There That's is some true. really bold, innovative cinematography or pretentious artistic cinematography depends on how you want to how you want to phrase that in series one space oh, yeah. 1999 and some of it is gorgeous and so oh, yes it is so well thought out um but then in series two it's just incredibly pedestrian there's no time spent on it there's no it's the the lighting is just classical slap up the lights lock them down uh, and go kind of look to it so the fact that they put some color behind some of the panels, I think that would have looked amazing in series one. If, if the production still value's had, been good. Yes, if the production value's been good. So I think it could have still used a little bit of that color. Well, then, that's what I said. I mean, yeah. I, liked the, I liked the fact that color was there, but there was a, as you pointed out earlier, there was this short change that took place uh, in, in the production standard. And yeah, we got great color, but it came at a cost. And that is a very, now a really, I'm not saying inexpensive or thrifty. I'm going to call it cheap. cheap, very cheap production values. And overall, uh, I, I think uh, that creates for more of a, a detriment for the show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look at main mission versus command center. Oh main yeah. Mission's, I loved main mission. It's an utterly impractical set. But it looked great. But you know, if you were making a movie... That'd be your set. It was a fantastic set and was beautifully shot. Having to do that week after week after week probably was a serious time sink. But, you know, and also all the space that was used, a lot of it which wasn't used much in the course of the show. But on the other hand, Command Center looks like it's here in the Fusion Patrol studio, which is <laughs> you know, sort of a converted garage. And it, it's so small and... Most of the time, I mean, they can pull back a little bit and show that it's a bit bigger than it is. But most of the time, they catch it in such a small corner, you think part of the set's missing. And they're Mm -hmm. trying to hide the fact just by keeping the camera in really close on two or three desks. It just looks bad. And it it looks cheap. And then it's not well lit. And it's not very imaginative. Um, I could see something in between the two of them being a little more practical. And at the same time, visually interesting. But we didn't get that. We got, and, and Medical Center. Medical oh, yeah. Center was pretty cool for a medical center in Series 1. It had, like, isolation rooms. And it had... It had a lot going for it. It had a lot going for it. And in Series 2, it's just basically one room with some cots in it. Yeah, and, it's just two beds and that's it. Uh, it. It's really a downgrade. And, and of course, we don't get an explanation as to why they're changed. They, they couldn't even bother to go, oh, yeah... An asteroid strike took out command center or main mission, right. and we had to move to the backup. Which you know something, I'd take that. <laughs> Being up on the surface in a two-story glass atrium room is not the best idea for hurtling through space. No. I could see moving into an underground bunker for your command function. I could see moving a lot of the staff down into the catacombs and building out new uh, housing facilities down there. 
doing it pretty quickly. In fact, you know, once they began to realize what they were dealing with as they're, you know, hurtling out into space, it's like, you know, this might be something we want to start planning right off pretty soon. But again, we're talking about a series that had this intention or, or, well, intention that didn't have any intention of creating something that was heavily arc related. Right. Right. So uh, I'm guessing that's a no. So the question is, was did did series two get anything right? Uh, no, it didn't. I don't think it did. What about I mean, the one thing that people usually hold up and say? Here's the one thing that series two got right, and and I think this is debatable, but I'll throw it out there. Maya. No, they didn't get that right. Is that because they just didn't know how to use the metamorph? Yep. That that's my thought. I, I like Maya. I really oh, well, like Maya. Oh, Maya. She's in, she. Well, I love Catherine Shell. I mean, let's be real. I mean, what she she's yeah. she's. Gorgeous, even with this, you know, the slightly alien do, you know, with the eyebrows and her hair and 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 uh, the makeup. Uh, I love her. Uh, she 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 brings an interesting quality as as a person. Uh, I like the idea of her being, you know, the new science officer. Although um, I found her, yeah, she, I I felt like they could have done more with her purely for her scientific knowledge. They didn't do enough. I think she's a wasted opportunity. Yeah, I agree. Um, but. Again, she was, as you said, she was, you know, here's, she, here's this character. She's brought in because she's a metamorph. And I don't think they really knew what they were doing. They had no idea. I mean, she would, her her shape changes were just insane yep. and wildly inconsistent. Yep. And and not, yeah, not at all practical for somebody's brain. But no. I'll tell you what, here's what she did do. So one of the criticisms in series one was that everybody was all dour and we're going to die and... Right. And so no humanity, really, in a lot of those characters. And I would, with the possible exception of Victor Bergman, I would say that that is kind of, that's kind of true. We can talk about him a little bit. But but in series two, they tried to make it a little more human and the people a little more likable. And we see that with the quote unquote romance between Koenig and Dr. Russell and the romance, and Tony and his beer and his romance with Maya and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But and we even oh, see that in Alan. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, Alan had been improving all along anyway. But I know, but this was a huge improvement by now. I mean, he he still kept lapsing into angry, you know, the angry Aussie. Uh, well, the he was a hothead. He, yeah, he, he, a total he, hothead, especially in the beginning. He was he was out he was out of control. And by the second season, I mean, he was re- he. I oh uh, uh, come on, uh, Chip. What was that? He called that one alien boy. Um, he had Cobber. a name for him. Cobber. Cobber. Yeah. He, I mean, he's like. He's like Uncle Alan. Yeah. The friendly, lovable Uncle Alan. But, yeah, but what I was getting to in, in the changes to the personalities, so Koenig, Russell, Verdesh, and adding Verdeshi in there, Maya is the only one that lit up the room. She seemed so genuinely nice and believable. She was the only human there. Everyone else was a caricature. Well, you can't blame Helena. Her face was pulled back too tight. Exactly. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, she, she was the one that when she would give it a performance, and I, I don't necessarily want to put it to the actress, but, it, you know, part of it is the actress. When she was a little upset that humans were coming and saving them all and she didn't have a home, that was believable. Or silly, but believable. You know, it was irrational, mm-hmm. but believable. When when she was having fun and she was being playful, she was genuinely having fun and being playful. When Helena is being playful, 
she's acting like she's on some sort of drugs. <laughs> or she's acting like she's pretending to be like she's on some sort of drugs. I'm not sure what, what the heck it was. And Koenig is a piece of granite trying to stretch a smile. And Martin Landau is an amazing actor, but he he had, I guess he had his... He had a. He still had growing to go. Uh, I think. Um, he was. Well, although he could be I really I, good in Mission Impossible. I, I, I to be. Yeah. I, yeah. I really didn't follow him that closely in Mission Impossible the series. Um. So I. But didn't he? Wasn't he like the? He was the makeup guy, wasn't he? Always in costume. He wasn't always in costume, but a lot of times he was. He was uh, the guy that got replaced with the costume. But no, there were there were. It's not as bad as you your memory puts on there and going. Oh yeah. Leonard Nimoy, Martin Landau, they were never they were never in the show because they were always in costume. It really wasn't like that. But it but he could do it. I think I, I don't know what his acting technique was, right? But I think he developed the character in his mind and he had this guy who has shut down and he's enormously focused and driven, but he's a deeply emotional belief in, you know, going with your gut and it didn't matter what story they gave him he locked on that mm-hmm. and so when they're giving him these lines when they're giving him lines he's trying to be flirty or when he's trying to be whatever he's still enveloping that core john koenig that he's decided is john koenig and i don't think that worked i think they got john koenig he got john koenig he wrong. got it wrong yeah and doesn't matter how they wrote him, he still had the core of wrong. But if he mm-hmm. had been thinking, "Oh, I'm playing role in hand," he could have he could have rolled that one right on through. But he just didn't. And it's not that I dislike him; it's just that, in fact, I I I liked Commander Koenig in the in the series originally. It's only when we sit here and look at what he's actually saying and the command decisions that he's making and why he makes those command decisions, you're like. Wow, this guy needs to be fired, and he needs to be fired now, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, pretty much. So, I mean, I, I, I think, I think some of the set design in series two, particularly some of the isolation wars and things, I, I, I like some of the stuff that they did. So, I'm not going to put it all down as it was cheap and bad. Some of it was good. Some of it was was interesting. I mean, and all the model work is, of course, exactly the same, but. It's tough to find anything good. Uh, you know, I, there are, like I say, making the characters a little more human would have been good if they had done that in the first series. Yeah. You know, uh, the ideas aren't necessarily wrong. Maybe having a little bit more action might not be a bad idea. Uh, look at the story, uh, Dragon's Domain. A lot of action there. A lot of action. Uh, that was a great story. Yeah. Well, I would even go so far as to say I thought Breakaway. Oh, Breakaway is uh, astounding. Was amazing. I mean, I, I and I knew that the series was not going to hold up to that kind of standard. But I remember thinking as I watched it for this go around uh, that, damn, you know, it's it's a lot better than I remembered it being. I mean, I was so jazzed by it. I couldn't wait to talk about it because it was just so well shot. It was so well told, and it had it. It was very very linear um but tight it, it, it there was no waste in in the way the stories were being told and it was exciting it, it was an amazing episode so yeah there were there were a lot of really great there were some really good action moments and dragon's domain is another one in fact i like that even better 
when I saw it on those last go around. I thought, wow, this is a far better episode than I remembered it being. As I recall, Breakaway was the one and only story written by a seasoned American scriptwriter that they brought in. And then for whatever reason, he didn't write anymore after that point. <laughs> go figure. I, I wish he had, you know, or if they'd gone, you know, we need a new producer. Who wrote Broke Breakaway? I wonder if he can produce that guy get him in here and do some stories instead of what we got okay so let's um if you had been trying to fix series one space 1999 what would you have changed oh wow um well right from the get-go i think i would have tried to better well okay i think we've hit on a couple of those things already yeah um i would have initially communicated the intent of the show and i think that could have been done Early on in the series, there could have been some, I wouldn't call it a throwaway line, but maybe just a, uh, a discussion that, you know, as a, as, a, as a tag to an episode where there could be this, this conversation between Koenig, Victor, and possibly Helena uh, about, you know, well, you know, we're, we're heading further out into space. And I think the further we go, the more mysteries we're going to find. And, you know, been, we're probably the worst equipped people to handle that. So that having that communicated initially before the show got really just bonkers weird might have been nice. So there's that I would I would have liked to have fixed that. Uh, and the other thing that we did both kind of hit on in that is there were times where the series almost went anti-science. Oh, yeah. And I did not care for that. I mean, I love the idea of expanding one's vision to include you know okay there's a lot going on here we fully don't understand you know and to maybe entertain the idea that you know okay you know maybe there's a really heavy medical physical element that's going on here but when victor would address it there was always this tone of you know science is science is useless here science won't tell us anything and and i never cared for that Mm -hmm. you know science um I, i remember a line in uh in uh, Babylon 5, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to change the wording a little bit uh, for the sake of this conversation. But I would say that um, science and um, faith, for lack of a better term, uh, are like the shoes on your feet. You go further with uh, with both than you do with just one. So I think that it would have been more interesting if there had been a strong emphasis on science throughout the entire go, especially on Victor's part. I mean, we got that a bit on Maya's, a little bit, nowhere near enough as we should have, but we did get some. We got virtually none on well, we never did, We never did anything metaphysical in Maya's range, so there was no, never we didn't. anybody going, wow. But, and, right. Except and for then, those and then, crazy mutineers who had the Green's disease, but yeah, then, that's solidness. <laughs> yeah, Solid but, with, uh, but with Victor, he, he would go, you know, turn into Mr. Philosopher, mm. you know, like he just came out of the mountains of Tibet. You know, he, he now he's a monk, you know, and, and, and I, that just felt very um, much at odds with how he's initially portrayed. I mean, you even see it in the opening credits. He's studying some kind of a space globe. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's a globe of the, you know, a transparent globe of the moon. But just from that, you get the sense that, OK, this guy is he's studying the science. I mean, that's the immediate the immediate impression you get. And. And in, in episodes, uh, as they're being told, especially as we get even further and further into season one, it becomes even worse. You know, I don't know if it's just because of the, the order that, that we got them in. I don't know. But it seemed like it just became more and more apparent that uh, this, he, maybe he was there to, be, to serve as, you know, a priest or something. Hmm. 
Okay, let's talk about. Uh, we've talked about Vicar Bergman and and his, and let's uh, let's ask whether or not it was a good idea to get rid of Paul Morrow. Well, he was there to sort of serve as a love interest for um, Sandra mm-hmm. initially, but now you've got Maya and now you've got Tony. Now uh, maybe they felt that having Paul you know, all of a sudden switch sides and start kind of romancing Maya would have been an ugly idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't, maybe they just feel that that would be um, uh, worthwhile. So instead we're going to just bring somebody that we've never seen before. How many spare yeah, people, that, do, yeah, that, how many that, spare that people does Alpha have? <laughs> that part's a little annoying. Yeah, I, I, I would say. I, you know, my here's my thing about Paul Morrow. Uh, I couldn't care less. Um, he was a dour uh uninteresting character and even in the he one was. time where they gave him something to do he oh, just God. you know he went nuts and i you know i can under i can completely understand jettisoning paul i think they could have retooled him uh well like just, they did with alan they, they gave him evolution then they made him a better character i'm sure they could have done that with paul um and they could have brought tony in because we never really had a head of security right we had security guards but nobody in main mission was security tony is head of security he could have they could have consolidated that function onto the bridge so they could have brought him in uh you know and sure he came out of the blue but paul's character I don't know what his function would be, especially since he was kind of like backup for Koenig and Koenig didn't need any backups because he could do everything. <laughs> and yeah. his contract says he will. So <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't miss Paul. Uh, I, I have nothing no, against the actor. Not really. And I've seen him in other stuff. I like him. He certainly has that sort of uptight sort of demeanor to it. He could have been useful. In the show, especially when they had a couple of other people like Bill Frazier that they would bring in that they needed for... You know, another one, I didn't even write it down, Kano. But gone. Don't need him. Maya's taking his place. He felt... Kano, computer says no. (laughs) I I, I, kind of get the feeling that maybe AbFab kind of... Not AbFab, but um, Little Britain stole stole some ideas just based on Kano. But he... I mean, he was a really odd character. I mean, here you got this guy who works the computer. Turns out that there's a reason why. It's because he's part computer. Um, and I think there was a lot of potential there that just never got explored. And instead, he kind of became a little um, irritating, I think. Did, did the first series seem more like it should have or was an ensemble show? It did feel more ensemble than the second season. Yeah, which they, they cut that down. Considering. All right, let's talk about Tony Verdeshi then. Who, I will tell you, when Series 2 came along, at when I was however old I was, 13 or something like that, he yeah. was my favorite character. Maybe even more than Alan. Yeah, even more than Alan. Those two were like neck and neck for my favorite character on the thing. But for me, and my watch through, um, you know, I grew up from when I was 13 years old, and apparently Tony didn't, because he's hmm. a juvenile. Oh, totally. <clears throat> And I obviously couldn't recognize that when I was that age. But oh God, he's 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 fourteen years old. <laughs> Let's be real. Yeah, yeah, he is. It's the way he deals with Maya all the time, in particular, is just <sighs> disgraceful. But it's mm-hmm. it's so teenage juvenile stuff. And I, yeah. I, 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 but I still kind of like him. Well, when you in the case of Tony, though, I think we're playing the comparison game to Paul. Um, 
what, what, sorry? To Paul? Are we comparing him to Paul? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe, yeah, to Paul. Um, and also just the way everybody else was. Uh, I mean, the only one who really showed any kind of warmth in season one, for me personally, was Victor. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody else kind of felt very, you know, sanitized and you know almost almost like walking disinfectants but we you know then tony comes around and now you've got this guy who um he's a man of action and he's he he's got he has depth to him to some degree i mean even if he is just you know a delinquent cartoon depth but depth nonetheless (laughs) yeah it's cartoon but but he's got more depth than what we've been seeing prior to that everybody everybody else was two-dimensional to the you know or or just downright transparent we didn't get that with tony tony had some kind of quality to him i mean yeah it was very cartoonish as you know by this by the time the series really or by the time second series really got on its way you kind of began to realize that you were you almost expected to see you know like the roadrunner the coyote kind of come come across his path um but at least he had something going for him as opposed to what we had been seeing before. So I think when you can do that comparison game between seasons one and two, it's kind of easy to want to latch on to Tony because now we've got somebody who uh, actually has some kind of quality to him. It's juvenile, as we said, but there's something. Well, that and the beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's he's got hobbies. So, yeah, it, yeah, I, I, I. I don't want to dismiss Mr. Verdeshi out of hand as a juvenile prankster because I don't know. Maybe it's just it literally maybe just a bit of charisma mm, there. Yeah. You know? Uh the actor and he didn't have that mustache that Paul had, so <clears throat> which I don't think did him any favors. Um did we we talked a little bit about Alan. I don't want to dismiss Alan. Um I always liked Alan. Even in the first episodes when he was an obnoxious, cantankerous you know, everyone else is sanitized, but the Australian has a temper. Right? Oh, he's he's the angry Aussie. He's the angry Aussie. And he he mellowed out with time and mm-hmm. got to be a lot more on the team. Which is, you know, great. That's that's right. I mean, it's not that I'm sure they didn't do it intentionally, but I mean, you strand three hundred and eleven people in space living and working together, what what was at one point a posting on a job that you're going to rotate through that then becomes the rest of your life guaranteed that you know you're going to live and die with these people even if you guys find a planet you're going to live and die with these people yeah and of course you're going to form different kinds and better friendships and better interacting and working personalities with everybody alan's the only one that kind of showed that to me and i don't think it was intentional i just think that it's because they thought well He's popular, and yet he's a jerk, so let's fix him up a little bit uh, as we go. Until eventually he became like, Mr. John Koenig is always right, and I will defend him. Because he's always right. Really, Alan? Think about that. Really? (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, it kind of comes down to, once again, it seemed like that... uh, just as sometimes the actors didn't really know what their characters were all about, I kind of get the feeling that the writers didn't, especially in the second season. I mean, it's like, who, who the heck were they getting to, to write some of this stuff? Jane Baker and her husband. Beep. Oh, dear God. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lump two of them together. Um, did their personalities change? John Koenig, Helena Russell. Yes, I think they did. Um, they're, well, in terms, well... Even though Helena is incapable of showing any kind of expression, ooh, that's two ep- two times in two one episode. One episode. I'm I'm I'm, I'm going. Um, 
just from dialogue and the way you would see them relate to each other, you got the sense that they were really trying to play more on the romance. Now, they started to hint at that towards the end of the first year. It was very but chaste, but yeah. It, it was. But oh, prior to that, it was not just chaste. It was, um, there was animosity. Yep. They did not get along. They did not see eye to eye. Let's put oh, it no. No, they fought. Um, uh, I kind of wonder if there wasn't some kind of truth to that in, in real life. Um, but in any case, when we got into second season, I mean, Helena, well, I, I, okay, as far as the relationship goes, Helena did seem to warm up a lot more to, to Koenig. And Koenig did seem to, he did thaw as a character, thought a lot towards, towards Helena. And that did make them warmer people. Uh, the one thing, uh, but if if I want to just isolate Helena's for one moment, uh, the one thing that's definitely a change from season one to season two is her incompetence. Okay, her it was off the it was off the chart in season two. Oh, okay, I was gonna say she had quite a lot of it in series one, <laughs> but it was bonkers in season two. I mean, huh. she was just—I think she was just an she was an idiot. I I think I I would like to go back through and and not watch them again <laughs> but but i would like to go back through and and mark down the episodes where helena was incompetent because i think she was just as incompetent in series one <laughs> she was in series two but oh jesus we could turn into a drinking game it would it was like every time helena does something she says he's dead and then he wakes up oh he's awake again sorry uh yeah uh i i don't i don't know about that i Were we supposed to think that uh, Koenig and Russell had reached the point of sexy time in series two? Or were they still just... You know, bonking in space, you mean? Or not, yes. Oh, I think they were. I figured, I I gathered that back when I was a teenager seeing it for the first time. I was like, okay, I know what's happened on the moon. Their romance seems so dysfunctional. You know, it, it, it has such a, it has such a pat banter to it that it doesn't, it doesn't come off as genuine. I mean, uh, for crying out loud, even though Tony is a complete juvenile moron when when it comes to Maya, it comes off as a genuine complete juvenile moron where you, you know, girls have cooties, you like her, but you don't realize you like her, so you poke her. And I mean that like with a stick, not, <clears throat> you know what I mean. You know, yeah. that, that whole sort of antagonistic uh it's supposed to represent sexual tension, but it's it's really just juvenile uh, uh, brain things. But Koenig and, and Dr. Russell, you know, nothing in that came off genuinely to me as, you know, once in a while she's like, why don't you come back to my place, John? And I just kept thinking they'd get back and then they'd sit down and they'd, they'd talk about how much they like each other and not actually touch each other. <laughs> <laughs> except, except how bad he insane Koenig got like when the android oh yeah was, was kissing her like really Koenig you really you I gotta mean, realize that this is, this is all a, a it they're they're baiting you and b she feels nothing for this guy so you know just you know let you know go. you know how the women are you kiss them real good and they fall in love with you that's probably what Koenig's that thinking. says all that's that uh, speaks very poorly for the kind of guy Koenig is uh-huh but I, I feel like that's what he was, I, I genuinely feel like that's what he was thinking. You know, oh, she's, she's going to fall for this. Like, if nothing else, nothing else, think of it as nothing more than a giant sex toy. It's a machine. <laughs> like, yeah. Let her have a spare one in her room. It's fine. Just, oh, it's, a, it's a sex bot. Yeah. 
So, I, I don't know. Anyway, can't go. All right. Uh, what about um, with Space 1999? Would you like to see somebody take on a reboot of Space 1999? And what would you like to see? Well, there's been talk about it over well, yeah. and over again. Of everything, years. yeah. Yeah, but there, I mean, I, I know that there was some serious talk a few years back uh, of them rebooting it. And, and I, I tried to reach out to the studio uh, that said they were going to do it, and I never got a ba- never got an answer back on them. Um, would I like to see it? Uh, well, it, it all depends on who's going to run the show, pure and simple. Well, what, uh, if, if you, what if you just don't know who it is? I mean, what if it's just a production company you've never heard of before? No, no, not really. Okay, what if it was somebody you had heard of? Who? Well, dep- uh, well, if Joe Straczynski were doing it, oh yeah, I'd be all over it. If Joe decided to do it, given his track record with not just Babylon 5, but with uh, some of the other products and stories that he's worked on, yeah, I would, I would do it. Because he, is a, he really knows how to tell a story of change. Where, you know, by the time, you know, when the story begins, by the time you get to the story ending, nothing is the same. And I like that. And he could, he would then be able to tell the kind of, you know, arc related tale of a bunch of people trapped on a moon hurtling through space and God knows, you know, God knows how fast or, you know, through what sort of spatial phenomenons and how many times, you know, I, I don't know if he would ever do an episode where they meet God or anything like that. Although I would say I did like Black Sun a lot. Being that, uh, being that I said that, um, I, he's, he's a showrunner that I would like to see do it. If he, if he decided that he wanted to take on Space 1999, and I, he won't, but if he decided for some you know god-awful reason that he wanted to take that one on and give a really serious shot at it and he had the studio backing, yeah, I'd watch it. You know what I'd like to see? I mean, I don't care who does it. I, I mean, I can think of people that I wouldn't want to do it, but I'm not going to dismiss that there are a lot of people out there that have, you know, could do it justice, right? What I would like to see if they did it was a la Straczynski. Let's say we go into this with five years in mind. We're going to make five years worth of Space 1999, or as we call it, Space 2199. And maybe maybe what we discussed, where they are going through space and they are discovering things. And the more places they go, the more pieces of the puzzle they get. And they get along. And, And I wouldn't even mind if at the end of the fourth season they didn't find a stinking planet and colonize it. And get mm. to see what the first year of them forming up on a new planet was like. I would love to see it with, where there is a conclusion of some mm-hmm. kind. And but uh, now it it would be a it would it would definitely be a how do these people come together? How do these people uh, overcome the challenges of space? Uh, how do they you know procedural too? How do they go about surveying a planet? How you know what do you do to to test it and you know, what kind of decision do you have to make to say yay or nay to something that big, right? I mean, mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. Koenig's, Koenig pulls that yay or nay based on pff, stupid ideas. I mean, the, oh, the he planet, pulls it out of his butt. The planet in full circle would have been great. I mean, okay, stay out of the amoebas. As long as you do that, you're fine. Everything else was great about that planet. And they're a technologically advanced people that are now a war aware of these things so there are a number of things but but let's say that we establish through the course of this series some of the concepts that that they look at and they go well if we do this we're going to have to do this or they have to do that and and ultimately they weigh it up and go okay this one's not a go no planet's going to be perfect right and i think that's in this series that's what they were looking for they were looking for the perfect planet instead of looking for a a doable planet a viable planet 
And yeah, and how many times do we see that happen? And we've had that conversation even you know towards the uh, you know the last last month. That's why of, I'd like to of see nineteen ninety episodes. Yeah, that's why I'd like to see a, the last year of it be on the planet that they choose. I'd like to see the, the actual ramifications, the ramifications of those decisions that they made. Where they go, well, we think we're going to go this way, and it turns out that that didn't work quite what they expected, and they have to overcome it. Because what we would then see is we would see that not only not only did you know it's not a question of you picked right exactly the first time. It's a question of you've got to. You've got to settle a planet now. And and there was never that. There was always this, it's got to be perfect. We land on it. It'll be great. Otherwise, we're we're hosed. And I, I it wouldn't be that. It would be like, this is our best guess. And then there would be new mysteries and there would be new problems. And we would not need to have, uh, you know, a, a robot from another planet and, uh, you know, a giant space carrot. Uh, coming down <laughs> on the planet, you know, for it to be an interesting story about space settlers. You know, it could do it. Uh, that That's what I would like to see with Space 1999 or uh, 21.99 or 25.99, depending on what you think NASA's budgets are going to be like. But um, yeah, that that's that's what I'd like to see in it. I, th- this is one that just calls for a story that has a beginning, middle and an end and, mm-hmm. and some fun adventures along the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would hate to see them redesign the Eagles, though. Oh, no, those are iconic. You know, close would be fine. Close will be okay, but 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 yeah. no, nothing radical. Nothing radical. No. Um, unless you have anything else. No, I I don't. I pretty much covered everything I got. Uh, in 1986, uh, Martin Landau was interviewed for Starlog magazine, and uh, there's a quote here from him about the show, about the change from series one to series two. And I just thought I would add it as a postscript to this uh, episode. This is, uh, this is quote, Mr. Landau. They changed it because a bunch of American minds got into the act and they decided to do many things they felt were more commercial. I think the show's beauty was that it wasn't commercial. It had its own rhythm. I felt the episodes we started with in the first season were much more along the lines I wanted to go. To some extent, that was corrupted. And that's his. That's his quote. That's that's a damn politically mm. neutral statement that he could make, but it's pretty clear that he did not like what they did to him in yeah. series two of Space. Yeah, he's trying to be very diplomatic, but there's no question of where his, uh, where his thoughts are on that subject. And I think he's right. It had its own rhythm. That's a good it way to describe it. Yeah, it did. It's like this is um, this is not Star Trek, <clears throat> and it wasn't trying to be Star Trek. Right. Although I do think the whole Helena. Tony butting heads thing was actually kind of intended to reflect, I don't want to say the the Kirk McCoy or the McCoy Spock dynamic. I think that's what the point of it was, is that you've got the practical and you've got the the doctor leading with the heart. I think that's what that was originally intended to do. Maybe, but it didn't come <clears throat> off well. well. It didn't come off well, but yeah, that that may be a reflection of uh, uh, of the acting at hand. But anyway, well, that's it. I mean, that's that we're done. Space nineteen ninety nine. That's 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 the final. They smashed that moon into a planet. All those places they went by. Finally, they came up with one they were going to hit. They didn't have enough nuclear charges left, and kerplow, and they destroyed whatever race was living on that planet and everything else. And uh, it was all all the end. Base 1999. Mm. Kind of sad, really. Yeah. Anyway, well, Ben, thank you for joining me. Sure thing. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Cheers. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. 
Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.